Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. That resonates with the people that are part of your organization and makes them want to be part of this and, and is and is transparent and honest. And I don't think, I, I, you know, I think sometimes there's aspects of that that are really missing. And so it's, you know, so it's a composite. It's a composite of, of honesty, transparency, of, of communicating effectively and going about what needs to get done in a way that makes sense and treats people with respect. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Jim McNeil. Jim, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm excited to talk about your new book, The Five Keys uh, to Continuous Improvement, Unlock the Potential of Your Organization. Our mutual friend here, Drew Butler, put us together. Can you can you start off and, and kind of give people a little bit of your background and kind of from the union side to continuous improvement yeah. and 25 years in between? Yeah, I should, happy to do that. In fact, I'm probably one of the least likely candidates to be doing this work that you might come across. In my background, I started out as an 18-year-old working in a Ford plant, actually a steel mill, and over time became a skilled tradesperson and eventually elected as a union representative in the steelworks. And then over a period of years, was elected to a broader position as the president of the UAW Local 600, which is, at the time, it was the largest UAW local in the country. So it was a large organization, very complex uh, and very challenging and very set in its ways. It has a his- had a history of militancy going back to the 30s and 40s. And to bring about change within that organization was a serious challenge and one that had to be met. And I was fortunate enough to be in that position and, and learned enough as I went along over those years to be able to make some changes that I think continue to benefit that 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 site and the number of plants that are all part of that local today. You know, it was intriguing when Drew first talked about you guys because, you know, I don't know that there are a lot of folks that think about unions as producing like these great thinkers to to 
promote change and continuous improvement necessarily. And yet, you know, from that launching pad, you, you've helped so many organizations all over the place. That's true. And, and there's more people than you might think. In fact, you know, there's many very forward-thinking individuals that are engaged in the labor movement in, in, a, in a lot of different capacities. In fact, my son works for the American Federation of Teachers. Is currently kind of chip off the old block in a way. And so you, you bring what you have and you learn along the way. And so I was fortunate in my, you know, in, in, on my road of travel to get a chance to go back to school. I got a graduate degree in organization development and had a, a couple of mentors that truly accelerated and, and excited me in terms of learning more about how do you bring about change in an organization that's a bit resistant, especially as an elected person, and maintain your credibility and continue to be able to bridge the gap between those that might not choose to do make changes and and you with the knowledge that those changes needed to be made in order for that site those individuals to be able to continue to prosper so that was my challenge and i was there during a period of time which when it was critical in in a number of different ways and was able to to bridge that gap and so yeah so that's what i did for 25 years and then started a whole different path, it was time for me to move on. It was a very stressful position, as you might guess. And so after a number of years in that position, I decided to leave. And I wasn't sure what I'd do, but I wound up doing bridging, moving to organizational change. And a lady by the name of Kathleen Dannemiller, who some people that may be listening to this broadcast uh, might be able to relate to, she was an organizational change leader, really, known nationally and internationally for her work. And she kind of took me uh, by the hand and helped me learn and made me part of, after I had left UAW and the Ford Motor Company, she asked me if I would join their organization, which I did, which they had a their specialty. And so I learned. So I went from like the top of my game, which I was at as a union leader, to the bottom of this new game or new business, a new industry challenge of organizational change and, and learning how to do that. So it's been an interesting journey. And that was a long time yeah. ago. Sure. And so, yeah, tell us about this second career. What, what, what have you focused on there? Okay. Well, when I, when I retired, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have anything in the offing except that I knew that I would be fine. I just had, I was very confident about that. And after I had been retired, maybe six months or eight months, I got a call from Kathleen Dana Miller, and she asked me if I'd like to learn more about their company in terms of working for them. I had used her as a consultant, so I had used their, that firm, and that firm specialized in large-scale process of bringing all of the people in an organization together to develop a strategy. And so it's large group process, and so it's a technology that that she basically helped uh, define. And I was lucky enough to learn at her feet, really, in terms of how do you go about doing this. And so since, so, so I, I did join her group and learn this process and then went on to do that on my own and with other organizations, you know, over the last 20 years or so. So so that background, her, her, her mentoring, learning, about organizational change kind of academically in school and then in real life 
with her and her organization enabled me to to help organizations in a way that I I feel that was beneficial to them. And I don't I don't know that anybody could have just walked in and done that. I think that experience in the labor movement, that experience in trying to bring about change in my own organization, having the opportunity to to visit other companies, other countries to see what they're doing, I think enabled me to have a perspective that probably is not that common. Yeah, no kidding. Well, hopefully everybody's going to Amazon.com and getting their own copy of the five, key, five keys to continuous improvement here. But give us a preview. Can you can you teach us some of the keys? I can. You know, I, I was thinking about this conversation today and what we would talk about. And and the more I thought about it, the more the bikes, the books, the book captures a field book experience because it provides not only the theory, some theory, very light, but things that were critical that you needed to know and tells you how to do this within your organization. So you could use this book in a very practical way of going back to it. We're having problems with this. Let me take a look and so forth. So that was kind of, you know, the broad cover for the book, the five keys. Let me tell you how it began. So we were working, my son in particular was working with two two sites that we call sister sites that we refer to in the book. And if there were any more two identical organizational uh, uh, units that were more similar, I've never encountered them. They were about maybe 100 miles apart, but essentially the same folks that lived in both areas. They made the same products with the same machinery, responded to the same hierarchy of management, got the same suppliers, the same customers. Everything was identical that you could that you could identify. And one turned out to be the sterling example of continuous improvement. It became that organization's model for what it can actually be and how good it could be. The other site struggled. And so performance was mediocre. They had a lot of additional challenges and Issues, safety issues came up and turnover and a very different world. And David, my son, was was working with both these sites, helping them, communicating, teaching them the different technology and some different practices that they could put in place. And in 2015, he was driving from one site to the other and we had a conversation on the phone and he said, he said, I just don't understand this. Why is this? Why is it such a joy to go to one site? And so painful for me to go to the other. And so we set about trying to figure that out. And we just determined that if we could figure this out, if we could answer this question, solve this puzzle, that it would help not only those clients, but clients throughout. And that's that's really at, at the heart of the book. And what we uncovered was that as much as the similarities extended across these two sites, the differences lodged basically in the culture between the two sites. And so we looked at that and we, we identified that as the main issue. And we identified the, chain, the, the challenges in culture to be captured in the five keys. So leadership, goal alignment, engagement, resources, and accountability. Those were the five keys. And so we explored. And in the book, David goes deep about the differences that he observed between these two sites as they pertain to those five keys. You know, I know you guys have worked with 
you know, governments and corporations and nonprofits and all these different kinds of clients. And I'm interested in your opinion. I think about, you know, to me, we, we talked about this for a minute before the show started, whether you call it operational excellence, continuous improvement, lean, you know, whatever title it is, this this idea that, you know, got so popularized by the Toyota production system. It's fascinating to me to see just the incredible results that that folks get who really live it, you know, and I remember the the first site tours that I went on here in the States, one's at a place called US Synthetics that makes artificial diamonds, one's called OC Tanner, they make like okay. um, rewards yep. and jewelry and stuff. And and um, like, I couldn't believe, like, I remember them just, I was interviewing these different people on the floor as we're walking around. There's like, you know, there's guys at the one shop that kind of, you know, like kind of little, little scruffy looking, got a neck tattoo. You know, they look like the kind of guys I used to work in oil and gas when I was like a teenager trying to make money for snowboarding. Right. And I'm like, oh, I get these guys, you know, like between, between high school and college, I worked at a kitty litter factory for three months once. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> these guys remind me exactly of my coworkers back then. Right. Mm -hmm. Except for the intense passion to explain to me, he's the guy that that thought up moving the equipment like this, like this, that saved that saved. They figure it saved over a second on each part. And, you know, they produce so many diamonds a day. You know, it adds up to this. Water. And I'm like, you know, it's a young guy in his early 20s. And I'm like, I mean, this is great. The company's going to make all this money because of this thing you thought up. I'm thinking here. How did they get you to care? Like that's that's what I'm fascinated about. You are so excited to tell me how you just made the company more money, and I'm like, that just like really grabbed me. It's like, how does like I get this guy? I've worked with guys like this. How did this company get him to bring his brain to work instead of just his hands to work? Because he is he is all about this. And went over and you know did Japan study tour, and I'm hearing like. The crazy amounts of improvement of like, we used to do it this long and now it takes us this long. And you're like, is that, is that even possible? You know, OC Tanner told me about a process that used to take 28 days and over the years they got it down days and days. And now they had it down to 60 minutes. And he the guy came on the podcast and told us about it. And I saw him speak at a conference a year later and they had it down to 30 minutes from 28 days, you know? 28 days, yes. Well, we've experienced similar you know, similar things that just seem amazing. And you wonder, how can this happen? And the way it happens, it's about a culture. That what, what that young man was communicating to you was the way things were there. His opinion was respected. The organization was willing to take some risks and challenges to go along with that because it, it, it turns the normal or the traditional management system upside down. And that is one of the reasons continuous improvement has struggled so much or, or often struggles with some organizations because it becomes, you know, an array of tools. You know, if you bring in lean tools, I don't care where you go, you take a lean tool and you implement it in an organization, you're going to get a benefit. I mean, I, I, I've never seen it not give a benefit when, you, when it's initiated. But if you come back six months later, where's it at? How are we doing? Have we learned anything more? Is it someplace else? And... I think in, in my view, in my view, a lot of the, the challenges associated with continuous improvement have been the result of the implementation of tools without working the whole human factor. And it's the human factor that makes the difference. The tools are the tools will come and go, right? There'll be new tools next year and new things and oh, we should have thought of this. But it, it's creating the organization 
that is looking for those things, the people on the floor that can see things that no manager, no supervisor would ever see because they don't run that machine. They don't operate in, in that world. And it doesn't it isn't a burden for them on a day to day basis. This person, as you were describing, that was probably a pain in the neck having that machine position where it was to begin with. So he's looking for ways to make it better. And he was part of an organization that would listen to him. No magic to it, really. What what becomes, it, what I think is oftentimes missing is how do you do it? You know, and, and we go into that is in the five keys. It's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing, very different, in order to figure out how do you do that. I mean, how how do we? What what is what is the critical aspects of leadership, right? And how do we go about doing it? How do we communicate? Or how we how do we? create a plan that's going to be adopted by the men and women that are part of your organization. So it's, it, it's, it's that looking beyond just saying, well, you should do this, you should do that. I remember when I was a young man in the steelworks, there was a time when the steel industry was dying in this country in the early days of its death spiral. And they would, there were new consultants coming in well, with every month, there was a new group of consultants. I mean, they just were coming through it, you know, and they would talk to us and talk to the management. And they would tell you what you'd have to do. They'd say, well, you need to establish teams. You need, you really got to, you got to have teams. And you need to do, you need to have some preventative maintenance. You're losing. They told you what, but they never told you how. And it always struck me and it, and it, 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 it bothered me. You know, you know it's, that's the easy thing. Oh, do this, do that. How do you go about doing that in a way that makes sense? It has credibility that re- that resonates with the people that are part of your organization, and makes them want to be part of this. and and is and is transparent and honest. And I don't think I, I you know I think sometimes there's aspects of that that are really missing. And so it's you know there's, so it's a composite. It's a composite of of honesty, transparency, of of communicating effectively, and going about what needs to get done in a way that makes sense and treats people with respect. There's that you know, trade union stuff talking. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's funny. I, as I think about this, I think about over the years, how many just site tours I've done and gone to organizations. And I think about the ones where the management talk about continuous improvement, but nobody on the floor does, you know, and I ask them about things and it's like, well, so what, if you have a good idea, what do you do with it? Oh, well, I tell so-and-so. Or, or we put it in the suggestion box. And then what happens to it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right? And right. I know when ideas like when they get moldy in the suggestion box and you never got any feedback loop, like where's the reward on putting things in the suggestion box? Like you may as well just put it straight in the garbage. Right? And like they're not, you know, I, I had a I had a call with a large medical client that's we, we've, we've been working with them for years and working with a certain team that really needed to up their game on on the performance of this one thing. And when we started saying, okay, well, let's get like a visual scoreboard, you know, and let's, so we can start thinking of some ideas to improve the numbers. What, you know, what, how many of these do you do? Well, like as many as there are. Well, about how many per hour do you, you know, I don't know. We'd have to, we'd have to really think about that. You know, and it's like, they have no idea where they're at. It's like, you can't, the, the cliche of, you can't manage what you're not measuring, right? right. But the other thing that I noticed, I'd love for you to weigh on this because I keep thinking about 
as we grow both this media company and our real estate investment fund, and we want this to be like, hey, this is just the way things work around here. Like you would have to fight to not do this stuff because of how it is, right? My thought is those firms that have the good intentions, they they don't have continuous improvement in the schedule. It's like they, they talk about it, but there's no time in a day to work on it. But those organizations I have a ton of respect for, it's like nobody gets to work until they've had their stand up or like, yeah, right. it, it's like, it's like what gets scheduled gets done, you know? So, so the way I would weigh in on that is that continuous improvement in many organizations is looked at as a program, not a way of life, not a culture, not something that this is how we are, but it, it's looked at as a program. And so then when it gets introduced, it's treated as, well, here comes this one, you know, here's the, you know, player of the month, whatever the people want to call it. But they, they, they believe it lacks, you know, that depending on the organization that this may lack, you know, sincerity. It may not be, I don't know how it's going to affect me. What does it mean to me personally, which is something every individual goes through when you introduce a change, but it's, it's, it's a standalone. It's like a program and we got programs all the time. Right. So I think that's one of the key aspects that organization leaders need to reconcile with and that is are you serious about this are you when you say that we're going to make this part of our our company we're going to make this part of our organization do you really or is this just another another program and and that you know we hope it works and we think it will but in terms of changing how we actually function eh, maybe not so i does that answer that yeah, well, I think my next question is, you know, I feel like I want to popularize the cliche, you know, everybody says what gets measured gets done. I want to add yeah. to it what gets scheduled gets done. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, All right. Yeah, yeah. Because right. and so I guess my thought is this, you know, in more entrepreneurial organizations, we got a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show. I'm an entrepreneur, right? For those of us where, you know, life is not a big system. We're we're inventing the system. You know, big businesses, they have a proven business model they're duplicating entrepreneurs are trying to discover a business model that they can duplicate, right? Right. Yes, that's true. It's very true. <laughs> At least in the startup phases. And so kind of this idea of like balancing, like, like everybody doesn't know what they're doing and they don't, they don't even know if we're going to be doing this in three months because we'll see if customers will pay for it. Right. And yet if we don't slow down and ask, how could this be done better? And you know, how long did that take? And what do you think would make it go faster? People, people are just so busy, they're not going to necessarily volunteer it too often, right? So my question is, can you tell me of a story of somebody you worked with, and, and some of the things that worked for them to, to be able to make it more of just how we work around? Here? Yeah, I can think of a, of a site where the individual, he was promoted to be the continuous improvement leader, okay, at this particular site. And what was interesting and challenging was that the, the site manager wasn't interested. So this this individual, I, and I admire him to this day, it, it was like beating his head against the wall. And the employees really wanted this change. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to be listened to. They wanted they wanted to keep. After a while, you know, they had put charts up on the wall, so they're keeping track of their their metrics and their KPIs, and. They had like a rail, Jess. They had a rail that was like a parking rail that they would stand behind. They wouldn't get close to the team leader, this continuous improvement person, to hear what, you know, like a morning meeting, side-up meeting. They didn't want any part of it. And the reason they didn't was because of the site leader. 
he, he wouldn't listen. He came up with ideas he wouldn't implement and so forth. So, the, the, I mean, the, the sad part is that this guy kept pounding it and pounding, pounding away. And we were there one day and the most anti guy out on the floor, the, mo- the guy who was most resistant to this process, had his nose about six inches from the boards and was studying. And we just happened to walk by and he came. He said, those numbers are wrong. This is what we did yesterday. This isn't right. So, you know, even despite the fact that they were up against it in terms of their top leaders, they had somebody there that inspired them and they saw this could be a good thing. And they cared. I mean, they truly cared and wanted to make a difference if they were only able. And over time, that supervisor left. That young man who was a CI person became uh, well-respected in the organization and he's still there today continuing this process and other sites that they have. So, you know, you don't want to lose faith and lose hope, but there's challenges. And in order, you know, if an organization is going to take this on and mean it, their leadership really needs to be committed to that and understand what's involved in it. And that they they have to be, they have to have some skin in the game. They don't have skin in the game. Well, it's just another program. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in your thought. I, I feel like, if you want to persuade, if you want to su- persuade people above you in the org chart to do this, you need to talk in terms of like things that show up on an Excel spreadsheet, profits, numbers, things like this. And if you want to persuade people below you, you need to talk about making their job easier. Like, I want to help reduce frustration in your job. Do you see it differently, or do you see how that could apply, or what do you think? Well, no, I I, I agree. There's there's the one thing that's missing oftentimes at the top of the house, and that is they're looking at at lagging indicators. You know, how did we do? What were the profits? And they're not really focused on leading indicators. What could we be doing that's going to impact those numbers positively in the next six months, in the, ne- in this, the next quarter or whatever? And so I think the, the fascination becomes, and it's, it, I mean, it's part of our history. That's how people got measured. That's how they were rewarded for, for their work is the bottom line. But the bottom line only captures, you know, the rear view mirror picture. You know, what happened then? So part of what I think is good leadership is all about is identifying and holding fast to saying, all right, so what's going to make the difference in the next quarter? So in your in the realm that you work in with uh, entrepreneurs across the, the country, across the globe. So what are they looking at? I mean, are they are they are these is that what they're focused on? Are they looking at what is it we need to do today to make a difference next month, next year, in the next quarter. So I, I think that's maybe the difference in the, you know, the, the spirit between the difference between an established organization that's that's measured and its leaders are measured totally by the last quarter, the last year, whatever those lagging indicators were versus entrepreneurial organizations that are looking at, all right, so what do we need to do to crack the safe? What are we going to do differently? You know, it is interesting. I've owned two different sales companies, sales training companies. And it's so different when you go from only measuring how much did we sell last month to, well, how many outbound calls got made? How many outbound emails went out? How many events were attended? How many emails were gathered this month, you know, inbound? And we, we I don't know, we worked with a home builder last year that our consulting arm did. And they had like a hundred percent increase in sales when we switched to leading indicators that got measured every week on a scoreboard that everybody saw. And like 
they were mind you they were in a bit of a slump when we started you know so that's got to get factored in right but yeah all of a sudden it was like people weren't just doing like random acts of business development random <laughs> you know acts. there you go <laughs> right and yeah. and you know it sounds so simple and we all know it yet when we look at ourselves like we're not all doing it right that's right that's right. And you get lost. You know, I mean, you have to keep reminding yourself, you know, what is it we're trying to accomplish here? And you get caught up in the day to day slugfest of just trying to keep the doors open, the people, you know, on the payroll, you know, the, the systems working and so forth. And so, I mean, that's a challenge, you know, and that's what good leadership is all about, being able to, to look beyond the, the everyday humdrum or the, the expectations that are out there and be looking at the big picture. And that's, that's what good leaders are doing. They're focused on the future. Yeah. Well, tell us another, tell us another client story. Tell us somebody else you've been impressed with during this, as you've been out there teaching and helping. Uh, oh, let me tell you a story. It, it, this one isn't necessarily a client, but it has to do just about recognition of what people do. Uh, we were working at a site and the boys said, hey, you want to go out for beer after work? And so naturally I said yes. And so we went to this little beer garden, you know, down the road from the plant. And they said, hey, let's get some wings. So we had a couple pitchers of beer and the wings. And the wings were phenomenal. You know, we're sitting there and these were all, you know, they were all the uh, mixture of management guys and frontline, a couple frontline fellows. And they were really good wings, right? So I said, who's cooking these wings? Well, we asked about that. And out from the back comes this little guy. And, and he came and we said, please sit down. He said, oh, no, no. I said, no, please sit down. And we told him how much we were enjoying what he did. And this, this fella, he might, I don't know, was he a little slow? I don't know. I don't know. But he said, I come into work two hours early every day. And he said, I take those wings. He says, I have a special concoction that I soak them in and marinate them for a while. And then the way I cook them, I've got to have the grease just right. And he went on and on about cooking these wings. And it just drove home the point to me, how much people really care about the work that they do. And so often they just simply don't get recognized for that. So when you talk about like the fellow with the tattoos on his neck and other people that you encounter that come up with either great work that they're doing every day, great ideas, whatever. And how often in their lives does somebody just say, you know, this is, this is really good. We really appreciate it. So you know, that kind of emblazoned in my, maybe in my heart in a way as to the power that the positive words and, and recognition can have on people in an organization from the top of the house to the bottom. More stories. Yeah. You think about you think about how often people get dumped on if they don't do their job, but if they if they do a great job, they don't hear anything. Mm -hmm. You know? That's right. Uh, like as we're sitting here talking, I'm thinking about like, you know, this idea that so many leaders have of like, well, that's what I pay much paycheck for, right? And that that's that that's enough. Yet we like the stats are like they're really impressive. Okay. They're impressive. That, <laughs> that if you if you spend the time to give recognition in a meaningful way. It's not just the cake on their birthday. It's not just, you know, it's not just that kind of a thing, right? Like 
personalized, meaningful, that like the the willingness for people to bring their discretionary effort to work, you know, the kind that you can't fit on a checklist. They're like, yes. you can't put on a checklist, make sure to go the extra mile, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Like you can't, you can't, like no matter how much leaders try to demand that from people, they have to give it to you. A manager cannot actually require it. They have to give you the discretionary effort, right? You know, do they save their best ideas for themselves and go home and start their own business in the evenings or are they bringing their best ideas to work? You know, like all that creativity. Some of them do. Right? <laughs> Some of them do, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm interested. You know, I, I like the stories. Let's go for more stories. Tell us some more stories. Hmm. Well, give me a topic. Give me a topic so okay. that I can tell you about. Well, let's do this. I We had a guy on the show named Marley Lunt who has done continuous improvement for Boeing and all sorts of big organizations, right? And he used to be at Utah State University, where the Shingo Institute's from. And he told me about continuous improvement in real estate that really opened my eyes because I kept thinking about finance and medical and manufacturing. And he showed me how like as they would turn over rooms for student housing, just that process got so fast because of bringing the lean tool set long enough that the mindset thought got into those teams of like, this is just how we're going to operate. And it was fascinating to me to think of like the time savings and the costs that were not being wasted from wasted time, wasted space, all these things that happened. And it was really my first exposure to how much Toyota manufacturing performance principles from the Toyota production system could be applied to owning, owning commercial real estate. So Thinking about that realm at all, do you have any relevant stories or principles that you would that you would say? Tell me about. Well, well, one thing that I think opened my eyes is is a young person involved in organizational change. When I was back trying to save jobs, we were trying to get a new a commitment for a new engine plant in the Ford Rouge area. And at the time, Ford had several different manufacturing plants making engines in other parts of the world. And out of all of those plants, we had the most restrictive agreements in terms of people could do this, they couldn't do that. And again, this was born out of, you know, decades of history where it was believed that the, the tighter control you had over the work you actually do was a, a method of job security. It was basically, you know, the company would break the jobs down into this and the union would argue about, OK, I won't do anything but that. So that was... So, so here you had a situation where we're trying to get a commitment for a new engine plant, and, and there's a lot of resistance, and the resistance wasn't just among hourly or union people. The resistance was equally strong among a lot of the management, because here you go, change, oh, wait a minute now, we've been doing it this way, and we don't, we don't want to go there. So between the, the union and the company, they arranged for us to visit four other engine plants run by Ford. And, and so we went on this trip. So it was a labor management group together. We went probably a group of 20. And we first went to London. There was engine plant in London. We went and visited. And there, there were two classifications. There was a mechanical and an electrical. All right. So those were the two. In our plant, we probably had 10 different classifications. You had a pipe fitter and a hydraulic man and a fitter and this and that. Okay, so that was the history of it. They're not going to put another engine plant in the least productive site location. So we went from there. Here they had two. We went visited another site in Germany, and they had one classification. So at that site, 
you saw you saw them it was a combination between electrician and mechanical they did it all they virtually you know they they handled all the maintenance all right so we've got 10 and and they've got one all right so you know we're kind of thinking about this and so then we went to the engine plant in spain ford engine plant in spain just outside of valencia i think it was and so we went to the plant and there they had one classification but not only were there mechanical and electrical they loaded the engine blocks on one end of the line and they took them off on the other. So they basically were handling the total production from one end to the other, one classification. And so the obvious question was, well, where are you? If you had a choice to put an engine plant anywhere, where would you put it? Would you put it back in the Rouge with 10, you know, 10 or 15, however many classifications that we had at the time, I don't recall. Or would you put it in one of these other plants that would be, very, very pleased to take it on. So at any rate, it shifted minds. And what I, I, I tell that story just to, to demonstrate the importance of helping people see what they can't see. You have a you, you, you only know what you know. Right. And so you get out of that a bit and you say, well, so what what are they doing down the street? What are they doing over here? Let's see if we can learn from that. And so that left an indelible impression on me and the other people that were part of that. We came back home. We made the changes necessary. Dearborn got the new engine and we made the changes that we were, we needed to make in order for us to be a viable entity and to make sure our, sure our costs were compatible or lower than some of the other sites that we had visited. So a picture was worth a thousand words. And sometimes it's very hard for people to to, to, to envision how things can be when they've never seen it. They've never lived it. So there's a story. You know, I just thought about that and I thought, you know, for the media industry, I don't know of anything like that. You know, like, I think it's amazing what happens in continuous improvement. You know, Toyota's so generous, they let people visit. So now all the other organizations around the world feel guilty not letting other people learn from them. And there's this real generosity, right? And it doesn't necessarily exist in a lot of other parts of industries, you know? And people are very, they're so worried about the competition not getting ahead that they don't want to share anything. And plus it would be, you know, that kind of feels like a waste of time for us to teach other people. And yet, as I look in continuous improvement, so many of the people who allow someone to come in and see how their finance operation runs or how their hospital runs, they feel like they learn as much as the people touring because they have to articulate what they actually do and, and all these kind of things, you know? And obviously it can yeah. get out of control, but I just thought, why can't we have this in the media business? Like, why don't I invent one, <laughs> you know, if there isn't one? Well, but that's a good point. I mean, I, I, again, you're making it up, you know? I mean, so many times we, you know, I've done work with clients and to, de- to develop the interaction with them, we made it up. We didn't know what what drove us. And again, I go back to Kathleen Dannemiller because she was such a, 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 a an instructive person in my life. She said it comes down to purpose. And she pounded this in our heads, those of us that work with her. Once you're clear about the purpose, the how-to comes gets very clear. But if you're not clear about the purpose, you just go keep going in circles. So, I mean, that that's advice I got from her. And if I were to get a tattoo, it would be that to remind remind myself of purpose. One night, a fellow consultant, when I was with Dan and Miller Tyson, we were in Indiana working with the plant and we were trying to figure out what are we going to do tomorrow? We had been there a couple days and I forget what the problem was. 
what are we going to do? And we were, were having dinner exhausted after a long day and said, and we kept struggling. We couldn't come up with it. What, what, what's going to work? And then finally he said, what's, what's the purpose? And once we could articulate the purpose, the how got very easy. Then we knew this, this, this is what has to happen tomorrow in order for us to be able to communicate or do whatever we were trying to accomplish. So, you know, so, so, so in the book, that's really, it's an accumulation of 40, maybe close to 50 years on my part and David's part about what would you want somebody to know if they were going to do continuous improvement, if they're going to be a person who's leading continuous improvement, whether you're at the top of the house or whether you're on the front line, what do you need to know? And that was really part of the impetus for writing the book. So what is it that you would have to know? And so that's what we tried to capture. Now, whether that, you know, certainly not everything, uh, you know, it's, you know, our take on that. But I would stand by it. And, uh, and you know, we, <laughs> we worked on this for a number of years, this book. This is, you know, this, it, it wasn't all the advent of, of the pandemic, although that helped us get it finished. But, but, but in, you know, this goes back to 2015, 2016, we started saying we got we can't we've got to figure this out we got to solve the puzzle of why two plants are so so similar and yet so dissimilar and what are what are the pieces that we wish we knew when we started this work what are those key ingredients and so in the book when you t- look at the roots that's some of that and because, you know just simple things like how do you bring about change in an organization if you ask people that they might look at you rather strange, and probably so. But there's a formula in there for bringing about change. That if you think about it, and you use that at the thirty thousand foot level, what needs to happen here in order to initiate change in this organization? So there's a formula: D times V times F is greater than R. All right. So, oh, a little intrigue there. So, so what is it? How do I do that? So, how what the satisfaction times vision times first steps? You need that in order to overcome resistance. Well, if I'm creating an intervention or if I'm working with an organization, how do I move through that, that, that equation in order to get to a point where I can overcome the natural resistance that's going to occur to any type of change issue? So anyway, in the short of it, the book, we tried to identify what are those just those kernels, those, those things that you would want never to forget and to share them with others. And so, you know, that's the early, the front front end of the book. Now you just got to get it on audio. You got to get the audio version done so we can listen to it as we drive our cars around. You think so? I, you know, we thought about that. We said, let's see if anybody appreciates this, first of all. You know, you know, you after you work on something for a long time, what I found is you don't really know if it's any good. You know, I mean, quite honestly, you say, is this worthwhile? Will people see value in this? You know, I mean, you think it's, pretty darn good. And you're, you're, you know, you put your name behind it, but what, what, what'll, what's others take? What's their take? Is this dribble? Is yeah. this something there? Is it something that will connect with them in a way that other things haven't? Yeah. No, you just got to count for the different types of learners, right? So, right. so your advice yeah. is, is to do yeah, an audio. For sure, for sure. Do an audio of it. Yep. All right. Plus for business development reasons, it's great. When you can, when you can have, you know, some junior member of the team reaching out to ideal prospects 
and saying, hey, listen, we noticed you're in the space. We wondered if you might appreciate a copy of this that are other people similar to you have appreciated. It, you know, no, you know, it sells on Amazon for 18 bucks. Happy to send you a copy for free, right? Well, it's yeah. pretty easy to email over an audio file, you know, and it's a great yeah. business development tool. So they can, uh, you know, a lot of people, right. a lot of people own books that they never crack, but audio, it's like, yeah, you can listen to it while you commute or while you go get the groceries or mow the lawn, you know, and build a different part we're, of your we're day. Gonna do it. We're going to do it. Here you go. It's <laughs> it. good advice. And I appreciate that. Well, thanks for making time to come on the show. I, it's like it's like a big, I don't know, it's a big ambition of mine to to further internalize these principles. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your your life's work here. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope and I hope I hope it has meaning for you. Yeah. Thanks for sending me the copy. Very good. You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> and you'll be talking to David soon. I understand. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna get his take on it as well. Good. You'll get a you'll get a, a different view. You know, those young guys, you got to watch them. <laughs> Very good. Thanks, Jess. Much appreciated. Thank you. It was a pleasure being your guest. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming. Bye, Bye, everyone.